0: Bonjour de Paris! Are you interested in Paris? Have you ever been to Paris? Do you like suspenseful literary novels? Two unrelated questions, except that I'm going to be talking about both today with author David Downey, who lives in Paris and has written a new novel that takes place in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I will be talking with, with uh, to David about Paris, about his new novel, and much more. So don't go anywhere. Matthew Felix On Air starts now. to Matthew Felix on air, people who create, people who make a difference, coming to you from Paris, France, where I have now been for exactly 24 hours. I'm obviously not in prime condition to do a show, but I'm actually feeling more or less okay. And uh, hopefully today's guest, David, will be uh, forgiving if I occasionally make no sense or if once or twice I nod off while we're talking. Hopefully he won't take it personally. Uh, But I should mention that also that unlike all my other shows, which are broadcast live on Facebook Live and then Um, then posted as podcasts this show I'm actually recording ahead of time so given all that given that we're recording this ahead of time I don't really have any news to share so I'm just going to jump ahead and say that next week on um, the 28th of April the show will feature um, my guest will be artist and founder of the creative process exhibition Mia Funk creative process exhibition was uh, started at the Sorbonne and it is traveling around the world to 40 different universities It features interviews with writers and artists about, as the title suggests, the creative process. So I'm gonna talk with Mia about her own art, about the exhibition, and about creativity and the creative process in general on the 28th. And I'm really looking forward to that conversation. For now though, uh, it's after this quick quick message from my sponsor, WordSpace Studios. We'll be back here in Paris to talk with author David Downey. A quick thanks to WordSpace Studios in San Francisco for sponsoring Matthew Felix On Air. WordSpace's mission is to bring together writers and thinkers of all ages and experiences. WordSpace will soon be offering creative writing workshops, a literary book club, and guided writing groups, and WordSpace is already offering writing residencies. They are submission-based, and they provide writers with room and board for up to one month. To find out more, you can email info at wordspacestudios.com. Native San Franciscan David Downey has called Paris home since 1986. He has written for over 50 publications worldwide, including Bon Appetit, Los Angeles Time, Town & Country Travel, The San Francisco Chronicle, Epicurious.com, and Salon.com. He is the author of three, uh, or sorry, the critically acclaimed Paris, Paris, Journey into the City of Light, three terroir guides, as well as several cookbooks and crime novels. He lives with his wife, Allison Harris, a photographer, and creates custom tours of Paris, Burgundy, Rome, and the Italian Riviera via his Paris, Paris Tours Company. Most recently, David has published a new novel, which of course, like I said in the intro, we will be discussing at length today, The Gardener of Eden. Bienvenue David.
1: Merci beaucoup, I'm delighted to be here.
0: I am ravi that you're here and uh, really appreciate you being here. So in French, do they say David? Because yes. there's no E on the end, but they say David, David right? Yeah. David. Okay. Uh, just so I get that right. But
1: I'm from San Francisco, so you. Can...
0: I know, but we're in Paris, and what well, what percentage this is in? Um, this is um, what percentage of your time here are you speaking French? Is it ninety five percent? I mean, at this point, because you've been here so long, or do you have a lot of Boy, expat I... friends or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, Paris is a very cosmopolitan city, right. like San Francisco has become. Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, I was born in San Francisco. Uh, it was not nearly as cosmopolitan back then but uh, gee I, I don't know I mean I never really thought about it but put right, it this way right. I divide my time between France and Italy mm. with a trip to the US every 18 months or 2 years when a new book comes out Yeah, and uh, I live in 3 languages and 3 cultures all the time yeah, yeah, so I don't know I mean when I get mad I tend to curse in Italian because it feels better but,
0: okay uh, all right and so you are you fluent in Italian as well then Sounds yes like. I
1: am I had the fortune or misfortune of having an Italian mother oh, okay and of living in uh, Rome for a period when I was young oh okay and uh, then before moving to Paris, I lived in Italy in a number of places okay. for a number of years. Yeah. So, and I still spend about half the year in Italy.
0: Oh, do you? Okay. Yeah. What part of Italy? In Liguria? Because you wrote a book about Liguria. Correct. Is that, is uh, that where you also live? Or is that I think just two fast? or three books about the? Two or three? Yeah. Yeah. Not that I want no, to No. Yeah. <laughs> who's counting? Yeah. Who's <laughs> counting? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, speaking of the States and speaking of, you said, you know, you go there every 18 months or so. You just did go to yeah. the States. You just did a book tour for mm-hmm. the new book. So how did the book tour go?
1: Uh, wow, you're jet. I'm still jet lagged.
0: I know we're both jet lagged. Uh, this is going to be a really.
1: I'm kind of permanently jet lagged. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was great on many levels. On the human level, it was wonderful because I saw family and friends, and my agent and my editors at um, St. Martin's Press and Pegasus, and they're all really great people, and I had a great time and. know some of the best independent bookstores in the country like book passage and um, politics and prose just to cite the two that um are well known all over um so yeah i mean in the ferry building uh, event in san francisco it was packed and that, that that was very gratifying yeah what i will add is that since i entered my seventh decade a couple of years ago um I find touring um, a lot more tiring than it used to be yeah, yeah yeah and it must be the world it couldn't be me it no couldn't be, I'm pretty yeah. sure it's the world yeah I think pretty
0: so. sure it's the world yeah. uh, you almost got stuck on your way back
1: oh yeah we, <laughs> uh, we took the cheapo flight back because uh, when you do a multi-city tour as you know it can get extremely expensive so I found these various flights that were very reasonable uh, one of them being Wow Airlines, <laughs>
0: the now defunct,
1: <laughs> from the Washington Baltimore airport via Keflavik, Reykjavik to to Paris, and we were actually the last flight out, and uh, That's I. Crazy. F- yeah, I mean, I didn't know. We didn't know. Luckily, right. we didn't know. I don't so. think anybody knew. No, I don't yeah. think... Um, I wonder if the crew knew.
0: Oh, really? They acted as if something was a little, a little
1: all, all Everyone, from check-in to all the way through, we uh, kept looking at each other and saying, um, why do you think they're so grumpy? They're not French.
0: Really? Really? That so was, they were... That was a mean dig,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the French, they're programmed to be grumpy, but yeah. the Icelanders generally in my experience have always yeah. been very polite and positive yeah. type people. Right. So we were kind of surprised. Yeah. Um, I, I'm very sorry that they went under yeah. because a thousand people have lost their jobs. Right. However, I have to say that the seat... I saw this on your oh post. My God. The seat was pay, uh, from, from uh, Baltimore to uh, Reykjavik, was the most uncomfortable seat I have ever been in. I was in pain. I had to sit on my neck cushion, and it was painful. So, I mean, I think they had some serious problems from the tires and the seats on up. (laughs) <laughs> I wish them well. I hope they can somehow come back, but they need yeah. to change their seats. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, <laughs> well, I mean, at least you got a seat, but I'm sorry that's the one you ended up in. It was your and was it just as unbearable for your wife. So I mean, it wasn't like you just got a bad seat. Oh, she got plane. a really bad seat, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, we'll see what happens with Wow. See if they if they're able to make a comeback. But um Speaking of the States, I'm just curious, because now, like you said, you've been here, or I said, one of us said, you've been here since 86? Is that what I said? 83? Uh, No. um, 80-something?
1: Well, I first visited (laughs) in 1976. Yeah. And I moved here full-time in uh, actually exactly um, 33 years ago, in April of 1986.
0: Okay. 86, yeah. Yeah. So at this point... um, I was going to ask, you know, if there are things that when you do go, do go back to the States every 18 months, if there are things that you sort of appreciate or if that you miss. Mm-hmm. But after 30 years, maybe you don't even things like that don't necessarily register.
1: Oh, or, no, no, they do. And yeah. I would say that it's um, I'm more sensitive to that today than I was 30 years ago. OK, um, th- th- I would say that there are a lot of things in America that have improved, especially in California. Um, except the politics. Although when I left, um, Ronald Reagan, because I lived in Italy before moving up here. Okay. So I, I bailed out when Ronald Reagan was elected president. Uh-huh. I had studied political science at UC Berkeley and was good, I was going to law school. And I said, um, I'm not living in a country that could have that man as president. He had been governor for two terms when I was growing up in California. Right, so you're
0: already very familiar. And
1: I was doing political science, and I was highly politicized, and I uh, said, I simply can't believe this. This is the religious right, which we knew about from the 60s, yeah. finally gaining the upper hand. Yeah. So I, I, that was one of the negatives why I left the United States. And then it's gone up and down, right? We had some very good years, and we had the Obama years, and now we've got Trump, and we better not start talking about Trump because I, I will have a conniption fit. Yeah, let's so, not start talking about no, Trump. No, we yeah. will not talk about Trump. Yeah. But... Um, uh, you know, the coffee everywhere in America used to be undrinkable. It was mm-hmm. hogwash. Mm-hmm. The coffee in America, by and large, is better than it is here now. Because
0: now we have all the boutique, or wouldn't boutique's the wrong word, uh, but all the specialty yeah, coffees. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, it doesn't seem like that's caught on over here yet.
1: Unfortunately, so much. Um, French coffee has gone downhill. You see, the funny thing is that When I moved here 33 years ago, there were lots of things in Paris that were absolutely great that you did not find anywhere else. Um, I loved Paris. I wanted to be more French than the French. I've completely given up on that. I do not want to be (laughs) anything but my very flawed self. Right, right. Um, But there were lots of things here that were absolutely wonderful that are no longer absolutely wonderful, because unfortunately, I would say that France has largely been disimproved over the last 30 years. Disimproved. Yeah, uh-huh. disimproved. Whereas yeah. a lot of things in America are actually better than they were. Um, I, I know my American friends kind of uh, hang their heads when they hear that, because everyone wants to, to hear that Paris is fabulous and France is wonderful. Well, yeah, but if you're a tourist or if you're you know staying on the surface that's it's great yeah. if you scratch down below the surface there are lots and lots of problems but just bear in mind revolutions don't come from nowhere they always come from somewhere and the yellow vests the gilets jaunes yeah. whatever you think of them are manifesting some really profound societal problems right. here Right, okay. that are bubbling to the surface. Yeah, yep. right. So you know, again, I am very happy that I live here. I spend a lot of time in the countryside where I write, mm-hmm. and in Italy. Um, but uh, uh, I, I, I would stick by what I said. I think France has been disimproved, and I think America, by and large, if you leave the politics out of it, has improved in many ways.
0: Yeah. Uh, just going back to your point about how you know certain things. How from the outside it's easy to idealize Paris mm-hmm. or France. If you're you know everything's better there. Oh, the people know how to live. You always hear people say things like that, right? Oh, the Parisians yeah. or the Italians <laughs> or whomever. They always they know how to live, and but then you spend a few months living here. I lived here for about six months, I think, mm-hmm. a while back. And there's, you know, the in addition to the gilets jaunes, the, the yellow vest, which is an extreme example mm-hmm. and a very timely example, mm-hmm. but also it's just the day-to-day. You know, all of my French friends would just be, it's metro, boulot, dodo, right? So metro, work, sleep, metro, work, sleep. Mm-hmm. That's a very common expression. Sure. If you're living in Paris, that's oftentimes really more what your day-to-day is about than... Mm-hmm. living the good, you know, the Parisian life. So it's really interesting how from afar, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess the grass is, the pelouse is always greener, I guess, from, yeah. from afar. Okay, so so you do tours, and along these lines of when Americans are coming and you're dealing with Americans coming from mm-hmm. America, what are, um, other than making sure that they come in August, which is the best time to come to Paris, uh, <laughs> what, first of all, kind of, what are some, what's some high-level advice you would give them, uh, or do give them, and then what Two, three questions, really, just to kind of overwhelm you, since again we're both jet lagged. And uh, what are some of the, what are the, what's the best or the the, um, how did I say this? What's the most overrated site in Paris, and what's the most underrated site in Paris, if any come to mind? So first off, high level advice, then overrated and underrated.
1: High level advice (laughs) is, uh, do not come here in uh, July. It's stinking hot yeah. and polluted generally, yeah. Yeah. and noisy. Uh, August can be great, even though it's really hot nowadays. Yeah, because it's still about half empty. It used to empty out to say eighty or ninety percent, but things have changed. Um, on the other hand, to be honest, I am never here in the summer. Yeah, no, I go to cooler places yeah. because the climate has changed. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> I took a couple on a tour yesterday. They were very sweet and enthusiastic people, but one of them was a Trumpster, and uh, when I told him about how the climate had changed here in Paris over the last, I've been coming here since 76, and I've lived here full time since You've experienced it it firsthand. Yeah, I mean, this is like California, and in the summer, it's all brown everywhere, and we're, the north, it's called the now the The region of France yeah. is already in officially in a drought situation. It was in on April? the radio. Yes, yes. Oh, never before. Interesting. Burgundy, where I spend a lot of time, used to be the Emerald uh, Heart of France. That's one of the things the tourist people would call it. It looks like uh, Sonoma County, or you know, right.
0: Mediterranean. The,
1: yeah, but, uh, but it's, not in a good way. I no, mean, just because like it's dry, full of vegetation aerated. that was used to being soaked in water. Yeah. And so on. So stuff changes. Um, uh, overrated site, uh, the Champs Elysees. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's pretty seedy. Yeah. Uh, I don't like it. I never have. Um, well, it's oh, just it's massive, like, also. It's yeah, just and massive. It's, it's soulless. Yeah. Also, yeah. to be frank, I think the Esplanade in the Louvre, what was done by am and company, I think it's a failure, but, you know, some people like it. Yeah. It looks like a shopping mall to me. Yeah. Um, uh, underrated. Yeah. Uh, some just wandering around some neighborhoods mm-hmm. like the... Uh, uh, Butte Chaumont neighborhood mm-hmm. around yep. the park, yeah,
0: like a little village feel in the city.
1: Uh, my favorite place in Paris—I shouldn't say this because it's already overcrowded. It's mm-hmm. not undiscovered. Okay, is uh, Pere Lachaise Cemetery? Yeah,
0: that's very cool.
1: So for twenty years, my office was about a hundred yards from Pere Lachaise. Oh ah, nice. So I, I I walked in there every day and I'd sit on the tombs and have lunch. Oh, that's cool. Feed cool. Feed the ravens and <laughs> snakes. Commune owls. with the uh, commune with the
0: spirits of the dead, with Jim Morrison and it, exactly. all the others. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Well, in um, my earlier thriller called Paris City of Night, I have a scene that's set in Père Lachaise
0: Uh huh. Okay. Well, that's um. Kind of a nice transition, not specifically to Père Lachaise, but just to your books that, in which which do take place in Paris. Because like I said, the the new novel does not, and we'll be getting to that. But I did want to touch on um, just going a little bit further with with this uh the idea of Paris, I guess, is uh, I want to touch on three of the books for people who are coming Mm -hmm. and who might want to check them out before they come or if they're even already here, perhaps. So the first one that I want to talk about is A Taste of Paris. That's probably, is that the most recent Mm -hmm. Parisian-themed book that you've done, right? So 2007, 17 rather, won the Gourmand Award for Best Food Travel Book from the United States. Congratulations. And Alice Waters... Not a bad uh, recommendation to get. So Alice Waters said, A Taste of Paris took me on the walk I have always dreamed of, a joyous romp through the time when culinary historian and literary gastronome David Downey, as my guide, the streets and tables of Paris will never be the same, and I could not be more grateful. That is quite a review. Um,
1: I couldn't be be more grateful (laughs) to her. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad she was so enthusiastic.
0: So what's the book about?
1: Um, the book is about food and wine, to some extent, in Paris, since the beginning of recorded history in Paris, meaning the Roman invasion. Okay. Uh-huh. But what, what I do is I take you by the hand, and I walk you around Paris, and I take you to all the places that I know and love or hate, and I tell you the history. So I take you on to the Île de la Cité where it all started and the book kind of starts there and then it spins out and it follows vaguely uh, the march of time, if you will, from Caesar through the Middle Ages and up into the, uh, the, the French Renaissance and Baroque and whatnot and right up to the invention of the modern restaurant. A lot of people don't realize that the first restaurant in the world was founded in paris in the 1760s really yeah restaurant they, they back then they called it a restaurateur uh-huh. because he was it was a character a man uh, who um, may have had a pseudonym or may never have existed the way it's been reported but in any case yeah um he he would restore you to good health with ah, with these healthful interesting uh, bouillons mostly people
0: which are um, broths Bro- yeah, yeah like broth
1: yeah and um, healthful food yeah um it was uh, the 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 first restaurant was designed to cater to a debauched um, <laughs> aristocrats really who had money it was expensive and. The concept, you see, we call everything a restaurant now, yeah. even yeah. a fast food franchise, yeah. which is a, a mistake. I yeah. But in any case, back then, a restaurant, a restaurant, was something very specific. It meant that you uh, went into the establishment and you sat at your own table and you got served by a waiter and you had a cat, a menu, and you would choose dishes from it. Each dish had a price by it. Mm-hmm. So you knew what you were going to eat, how much it was going to cost. You were seated alone, and you had a waiter. Yeah. Okay. The idea was to serve people who had the means uh-huh. um, as if they were in an aristocratic household. I see. And, because before that, everywhere you went, you sat at common tables. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you got what was. Offered so that really was that a novelty day. at that oh, point totally. to, to sit at your own table. Absolutely, novelty. novelty.
0: Yeah. Did you try the recipe for, speaking of aristocracy and and serving or catering to them, did you try the recipe for, roast? what was it, roasted peacock and swan?
1: (laughs) Oh. Yeah, Yeah, roast
0: peacock and roast swan from the 14th century chef, Taivon.
1: Yeah. Uh, I like pecans and swans too much to want to eat them. Okay. Of course, I I love (laughs) pigs and all kinds of animals too. Then you eat
0: them, but not. The peacock, it seems, it'd be hard to eat a peacock.
1: Yeah, it'd be really hard to catch one and kill it and roast it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're pretty vicious.
0: I bet they are. And swans are vicious, too, actually. Oh, they can be vicious. Absolutely. Yeah. Swans and geese. Yeah, swans and geese, you yeah. Know, the,
1: the ancient Romans used them as, we use guard dogs. Oh, seriously? Oh, yeah. Interesting. And, and in fact, it was the geese on the Capitoline Hill that saved Rome from the invasion, one of the many uh, yeah. famous invasions of these um, Gallic barbarians. Hmm. the goals as in the French yeah who well, we huh. weren't French at the time because they originated in what are now the steppes of Russia and moved west and right. were in Italy for many many centuries they were generally mercenaries used by the Romans but in this particular instance they were creeping up on Rome and yeah. trying to take the city
0: but the geese wouldn't have it
1: the geese wouldn't have it.
0: Don't underestimate the geese people. Okay. Yeah. Who knew? Other than him and anyone who knows a well, little bit of history. that's we get, yeah. get, get,
1: get getting your goose, right?
0: Oh, is that what it's related to that fact <laughs> that they're... No. I think that's a different one. That's a bad pun. We'll have to look at that. Yeah. Okay.
1: Take, take a gander at it. Take a ga- Oh, Sorry. ouch. Sorry. Oh, Sorry.
0: that was really good though, actually. Okay. A Passion for Paris. Let's move on to the second book here. Uh, Romanticism and Romance in the City of Light. This was your quest according to something I read somewhere. I don't know if this is from the actual <laughs> book or this is from an interview you did. Because usually I have the citation. I didn't put it here. So anyway, this is a quote from somewhere that says it's about David Downey's irreverent quest to uncover why Paris is the world's most romantic city and has been for over 150 years. So my question to you, of course, is were you able to figure that out? And if so, why is it?
1: Ooh, uh, that page. Without I a total spoiler. A... Sorry, the whole book's about that. that. Yeah, that, that... That book I think that book was like 300 pages long I don't know if I can you can't sum it give up it to you in a, a nutshell but I would say something again maybe surprising and controversial oh, good. um I think the reason that Paris is such a romantic city is because it's a sad city uh, because non-gally. fundamentally the French as a nation if you can generalize and they're constantly gen generalizing about everyone in the world especially Americans uh-huh. so occasionally i allow myself to say turn the tables yeah it's, they're 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 uh, deep into melancholy uh-huh. in that book i talk about the joie de tristesse uh-huh. they are always going on about joie de vivre, de vivre yeah. i don't see a lot of joie de vivre not in paris yeah uh, among uh, teenagers because they're hormonal, uh-huh. and um, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. tourists yeah. and visitors yeah. and people who haven't been here long enough to get caught up in the red tape or whatever it is. Right. Um, uh, but the French, by and large, are pretty melancholy people. Interesting. They're super stressed. It's an extraordinarily competitive society. People don't realize that on yeah. the outside. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, there, there is this kind of wistfulness and longing, mm-hmm. and you wed that to the fact that Paris is an ancient city. It was here when Caesar arrived in mm-hmm. 52 BC. Wow. Now, there's nothing left of that particular city. There's some Roman things left yep. here, yep. but it's a very old place. And like Rome, if you start digging down, especially in some neighborhoods, you'll find lots of layers, and the people are a bit like that. Uh, so I, I think that the, um, the the romantic feel comes from the fact that so much of it is very, very old. Yeah, yeah. They're narrow streets. Some of them are still kind of winding streets. They're dark. It's like your little courtyard out here is kind of romantic in a working <laughs> class, roughshod way, I guess. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of, uh, uh, I don't know. This has more of a 19th century feel, but there are lots of wonderful places that kind of exude romance and romanticism. Yeah. Now, Père Lachaise, which is my favorite place in town, is, is one of those places. Yeah. Because you have this sense of history and of the fact that um, you're just one little part of this huge story that started way before you and is going to keep going after you. The French have that. The Italians have that. The Chinese have that. You know, you were in Turkey, the Turks. Yeah. All of these old civilizations. In America, we don't have that. Right. We Because you are going to go out and conquer the world, right? Right. It didn't, nothing that came before you really mattered. Right. What matters is going forward. Yeah. In France, I, I call it a Janus civilization. Janus, the god of beginnings and ends that has has, he two has heads two You're in one each direction exactly. right, right and the french are like that
0: yeah interesting yeah i think that that it's interesting that you would tie you being general you not not specifically you just just now but the tie the, the melancholy to 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 romance but i think i think that absolutely makes sense but and that ha- sense of history
1: people don't write great poetry
0: yeah yeah generally generally okay so let's talk about uh, probably your most famous book about Paris, which mm-hmm. is, let me just make sure I get this right, Paris, Paris, Journey into the City of Light. Um, when I, the, 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 the research that I did said it's in its 10th or 11th printing, that is at least in the second edition, I don't know if that's still where it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but point being, this book has done really well for you. And uh, so can you give us a quick overview of what that one is about?
1: It's kind of about everything, it's an omnibus. <laughs> that's why it's done so
0: well, it's about everything.
1: Yeah, probably. It's a brief history of everything in Paris. Yeah. Uh, um, It's the the second edition, which is what's still available now, um, has 33 essays, and they're divided into three. Paris places, Paris people, and Paris phenomena. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I whisk you around town through the ages telling you stories. and. Uh, introducing you to important people in in the history of Paris, and the the chapters. Each chapter is is fairly brief, um, so you can fall asleep reading one every night. <laughs> I think that's why it's so popular. That's why it's so popular. Yeah. It's a sedative, exactly.
0: It's a literary sedative,
1: exactly. Yeah. And, and and it's got a lot of variety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I wrote it over a period of ten years because. Um, all of those chapters except maybe one or two appeared originally as articles in magazines Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I kept the rights or I got them back and then I edited them and updated them and put them together in in this book I wrote them hoping to do this and it worked out it worked out really well so I was I was gratified and um and it's still out there, it's still selling. Still selling, so still relevant, people, still, yeah. Yeah, and I may do um, a kind of follow-on. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to do that, but... Um,
0: a follow-on in the sense of updating or a, a second book in the same vein? A second book in the yeah. same vein, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. What's an example of a Parisian phenomenon, the kind of thing that's in that section? Because that's interesting.
1: Ooh. Um... Yeah, that's And I know
0: a, you wrote it 10 years ago. So if if it doesn't <laughs> if nothing occurs to you off the top of your head, I'm putting you on the spot, but when you said Paris phenomenon, that was interesting. Just curious.
1: Um yeah, I think that that would uh, be in in the vein of why is Paris a romantic city? Something, mm, okay, those something sorts like of that. Yeah, yeah.
0: So the more philosophical or sort of Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yep. What,
1: things that happen as opposed to um, I'm taking you around with Inspector Maigret, and mm-hmm. showing you where he lived and more, right, right. or taking you into Pere Lachaise Cemetery mm-hmm. again. Uh, Specific um, places, so, so, or it, it, right. yeah, either that, or I'm I'm talking to you about something like the obsession that the Parisians have, the French in general, but with um, the past. There's a chapter in that book about um, the year. 1900 and why it still lives on mm-hmm. and I wrote that with the year 2000 in view oh perfect yeah. uh, but it's absolutely applicable today yeah. and it's again that notion of looking backwards and forwards at the same time mm-hmm. which is what they do yeah um, so that that would be one of the the phenomena that I I described
0: okay cool thanks all right so that one again Paris, Paris, Journey into the City of Light. Sounds very interesting, as all, as do all three. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, though, about that one is uh, that features photographs from your wife. That's correct. 30, yes, 30 striking black and white photographs from your wife.
1: That's right, Alison Harris. She doesn't get nearly enough credit. Um, in most of my nonfiction books have been illustrated oh, by yeah. her, Okay. either black and white or color. Yeah. Um, and she's a terrific... Uh, photographer and
0: uh and you work well together apparently if you're doing it more than once
1: we have well it's been 32 years yeah <laughs> i think we've done um i don't know somewhere between 15 and 20 books together because oh wow okay. i yeah, i yeah. you know she i helped her i was her photography assistant in the past when i wasn't writing mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and she illustrated a lot of my books so it, would, you know, it goes uh, back
0: and forth, nice, complimentary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, another thing you did before we get to your novel, which you're probably wondering if we're ever going to get to your novel, but I really, this, this these Parisian books are just really interesting, and since we're in Paris, I had to touch on all that stuff. And there's one other thing I want to touch on related to being here in Paris right now, or in France right now, is you also walked 1,100 kilometers um, on part of the... I forget what it's called in English. Sorry, the Way of Saint James, yeah. which I had actually never heard it said in English. I don't oh, think really. <laughs> because I well because I first heard about it when I was living in Spain, so oh, I knew okay. about it. And, and a lot of people even in English just call it El Camino. So we're yeah. talking about El Camino de Santiago de Santiago de Compostela, um, but it actually starts in France. There are a couple there are a couple of branches I think that start in France and then meet up in Spain and end up in Santiago de Compostela, right?
1: I think that if think you talks to a real um, Camino totally. expert. Uh-huh. Oh, no, there are people who are absolute fanatics and historians. There are all kinds of history books written about it because yeah. it's, fan- it's, it's, it's a, a fascinating concept beyond mm-hmm. actually doing it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to study and read about it. Uh, I think they would say that wherever you are in the world, the minute you step out of your door, if you're heading on this particular um, pilgrimage, then that's the road. That's the pilgrimage road. Uh-huh, okay. Now, historically speaking, that pilgrimage began in the ninth century, in the late ninth century. And immediately, you had these ways of St. James or Chemin de Compostelle or Saint-Jacques in, here in France, mm-hmm. um, s- starting from major cities all over Europe. So you would, you know, from Lubeck and Hamburg and Rome. Oh, really? I didn't the, know.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. They
1: um, went. Oh, yeah, yeah. There, if you look there. at a map, especially an old map of the the ways of St James, um, and uh, from Canterbury. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Um, huge numbers of English people came over. And they would they would walk across England or the Great Britain and get into um, ships and cross over and then start. So. There are a number of uh, main lines of that hike that start on the Atlantic coast that were used primarily by English people and um, Irish people.
0: But all of them going to Santiago de Compostela?
1: Yeah. So uh, the main one here in Paris, this was a big road that came down from Germany and um, Northern Europe. And the main stopover was the church of Saint Jacques de la Boucherie, which is where the butchers had their um, guild headquarters and the, the trade was plied around this church mm-hmm. which was pulled down in the revolution mm-hmm. the tower is still there and it's on oh the that's on, jacques.
0: or uh correct close to yeah
1: yeah that's the tour saint jacques that one yeah uh, the famous beautiful flamboyant gothic tower yeah so when allison and i set out to do this insane thing which <laughs> which is totally tame i mean we didn't go into dangerous places or anything yeah, like yeah. that. But we started at that tower.
0: You did? Okay. Yeah.
1: Okay, so that um, pilgrimage road is a modern road today, obviously. But underneath it is the medieval road. And underneath the medieval road is the ancient Roman road. That was a north-south main Roman road from Paris to Spain. Okay. And underneath the Roman road was the Bronze Age and Gallic roads wow. that were there already because it was an important trade route. So these things are very, very old. I don't know if you ever read the book The Windy Walls of Troy.
0: Mm-mm.
1: Well, people ask me about my um, interest in, not to say obsession with, um, antiquity, ancient Rome, and beyond the fact that I lived in Rome when I was a, a, a boy, yeah. which probably comes from there. I also read The Windy Walls of Troy when I was... 12 or 13 years old and i wanted to become an archaeologist mm-hmm. and i've always been fascinated by the feuille effect it's a layer cake yeah. the world and europe yeah. in particular is a layer cake every you time start, you dig there's yeah. something yeah and yeah. it's just fascinating yeah so here's what happens when you get older okay you're a lot younger than i am i'm not ancient but you know i'm a senior now um I told you I live in three languages at once. I do in three cultures all the time. I also live in many places in time in the past, and I don't do it on purpose. It's just happened. But when you know the history of places, it it en- enriches your life because you live in these different times. And you're walking down the street, and you know that Louis the Fourteenth rode down here when he got married. And from that balcony, which is still there, that woman looked down and she had um, ushered him into the mysteries of sex when he was 16 years old and so on and so forth. So you're walking down the street, um, you know, a modern street where people are licking ice cream cones and goggling at the tourist attractions and everything. But for you, you know that that street is where that happened. And on top of it, that's the ancient Roman uh, East-West artery on the on the right bank, right. and so, you know, you're you're feeling Caesar rumbling by in his chariot, right. at the same time with Louis the Fourteenth and so on, and it's wonderful. I love it. I'm like, I'm probably going mad, as a consequence of all of this, <laughs> but it really is fascinating.
0: And it seems like a healthy sort of madness, if that's the case. Um, uh, <laughs> we can talk about that more offline. Um, but uh, you said you were a skeptic. So the, the the subtitle to the book is so the book again. I did, actually I never said this. Paris to the Pyrenees: A skeptic pilgrim walks the way of Saint James. What was the uh, what's the skepticism part?
1: Religious skepticism. Okay, religious
0: skepticism and skepticism, yeah.
1: skepticism in general. Political skepticism, boy, oh boy.
0: Yeah, I'd be skeptical about one thousand one hundred kilometers. Was there any skepticism? About well, that? I might. Have, it may only have been one thousand ninety six. Yeah, my, yeah. Well, you should be skeptical. Yeah, my feet hurt even thinking about it.
1: Well, but, uh, uh, two two things. Yeah. Um, I am so skeptical that I'm skeptical of skepticism. There you go. Okay. Yeah.
0: That uh, works, you unfold I think. that one.
1: The other right, one exactly. is that yeah, walking was. Um, I walk all the time. I'm a walkaholic. Always You're have right, been. Too. Luckily, yeah. I married a woman who's also a walkaholic. Yeah. Um. So as I said on one of my book tours back then, because that book was actually a bestseller and did really well. Yep. So I did a, two book tours, the one for the hardback and one, one that came out in paperback. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, w- w- the, the scariest, most dangerous thing a- a- about that uh, walk was uh, toxic sock syndrome. And what's that? Toxic sock syndrome. Yeah. Well, you hike for ten miles and oh, take your shoes to... off. You take your boots oh. off. <laughs> okay, I just
0: I had toxic. So I had to throw some the shoes I was going to bring to Paris. Yeah, I was. It was before I came, and I just had to throw them away. Oh, it yeah. was like I can't yeah. put these in a backpack. I'll be asked to leave the airplane, even Man. like a in, wrapped in plastic. There's these are so toxic. Yeah, I kept trying to deny it because I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Now I have to buy shoes when I sometime on my trip here because I only have mm-hmm. the, this this one pair That's so a, yeah I understand that, I definitely that, understand. That, I, I, I <laughs> you,
1: you got it yeah. what I can say is one of the positives you asked me for positive things yeah. about France and yeah. Paris the French are um, absolutely immune to anything stenchiferous they don't care about uh, they'll sit next to a, you know, a street person a homeless person who hasn't bathed for six months and it doesn't seem to phase them And, you know, they carry uh, rotting material with them that they ingest (laughs) with glee. And I do, too, because, you know, these really stinky cheeses and things. So they're not phased by that kind of thing. Well,
0: and again, I can attest to that as well, because I arrived yesterday after not having showered basically for 24 hours, just covered in you know how it is just covered in oils and and I had coffee to try to even stay awake and of course I hadn't brushed my teeth mm. and I was you know standing next to the woman who I'm you know renting this from and I said I'm really sorry you know you'll probably want to stand back and she said no no it's fine yeah. and then and then we started looking at a map together or something and I said oh god I'm I'm really sorry I shouldn't get that close she's like no it's fine and yeah
1: <laughs> yeah like
0: well, I, I said so now I have first hand experience that you're not just exaggerating no
1: half, half of the population here or more yeah. smokes
0: Oh, oh, that's been bug Even just in this 20... Because you forget when you're not here for a while, right? I don't forget. Yeah. makes me sick. No, but that's what I mean. I forget not being here. Oh, yeah. Come back and walking up and down the street. Yeah. It's It's everywhere. It's terrible. And people reek
1: of nicotine. Yeah. So here's another. You asked me about the French and all that. Ask yourself this question. Why does everyone in this country still smoke? And why do the young smoke more than they ever did before? Do you, Ever have, do you have an answer before. or are you just possible? oh I've Those got lots of answers oh. but we don't have the time okay. but I will tell you that I think that there are some very very deep deep um, psychological problems in mm-hmm. this country mm-hmm. and I think they are in general the young here especially are very 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 self-conscious and um, unhappy and the French have a wonderful expression mal dans leur peau uh-huh. When you're Not unhappy in your skin, yeah. uh, which is much more evocative than just feeling, you know, self-conscious or uncomfortable, you know, yeah. uh, and, and, and I think that's a real problem.
0: Yeah, and the cigarettes are sort of a way of kind of yeah, exactly. posturing or whatever. Yeah,
1: the way it used to be everywhere. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, guess what we're finally going to talk about?
1: A, a novel experience.
0: A novel experience, a literary novel experience that does not have anything to do with, well actually it has a little bit to do with Paris, uh, but has almost nothing to do with Paris, it has it references Paris, but this is of course your new book, The Garden of Eden, Gardener of Eden, I said Gardener but I think I kind of mumbled, uh, which I had the pleasure of reading last week, Ooh. and uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading last week, so thank you for that. I did not know that, I just assumed it took place in Paris, and I didn't read the cover, I didn't read any descriptions, I just started reading. And then I very quickly re- recognized my backyard, so to speak, uh, which thankfully I love. And so, but I was very caught off guard that it wasn't, you know, this wasn't a book about Paris. So um, why not Paris this time around? And where does it take place for people who aren't already familiar with it?
1: Well, it takes place in an imaginary town called Carverville. Now, mm-hmm. uh, You might point out that Carverville sounds an awful lot like Garberville, yeah. and it sounds... A- a bit like Downeyville, which exists, yeah, and lots of other places in the Pacific Northwest, specifically in Northern California. It's set in probably Northern California, <clears throat> um, on the coast. Yep. It's a dying timber town, and uh, I don't want to uh, no spoilers. Give, yeah, because it's it it, it is a um, a mystery. It's a literary novel of suspense, and I. I know it sounds terribly um, self-serving and I'm flattering myself, but I, I was nurtured on Alfred Hitchcock movies, and I I would like to think that if Alfred Hitchcock were alive today, he would turn this into a movie. It's a literary novel that has a, a suspense right. um, theme, element to it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it starts off slow. it's character driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the, right. the characters are important. and the the return of the um, hero or anti-hero to this dying timber town um, on a quest that we are, you know not sure uh, what the quest is about is the is the central theme. And then the things he discovers, which are um, pretty, Horrific, Mm -hmm. a lot of them. Yeah, and I won't go into it because I don't want to spoil the surprise of reading it. But I'm glad you didn't know what it was about or where it was set, and you just read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually a good way. Yeah. Did it keep you up at night? It
0: kept me up at night. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I plowed through it. I read it very quickly, and and I didn't know exactly. Yeah, in the beginning, like you said, it starts off fairly slowly. And I like stuff that's character-driven, fortunately, because I really like to get into, you know, into their heads and mm-hmm. their motivations and who are these people. So I uh, I really appreciated that part. And but then yeah, of course, you did a good job of making me wonder. Okay, so but why is this guy back again? Now I have to be careful not to do any spoilers. Yeah. Why is this? But you already said that part, so that part's okay. Right? Uh, why is this guy back to his this town? Um, and again, not saying any spoilers. Um, you know, what are some of these other people up to? There's obviously something else going on here in this town. What is that something else? So, yeah, you you posed those questions, and I, of course, was wondering about the answers mm-hmm. and was driven to keep reading to find out. Good. So, uh, mission accomplished.
1: Good. I'm very <laughs> happy to hear that. Uh,
0: so, why, why an imaginary place? And I'm curious, um, like we said, you were just in in the states, mm-hmm. but did you write this book from over here, from, from in Europe, just based on your recollections of Northern California, of the Pacific Northwest, mm-hmm. or did you actually need to go back, because you haven't been there for 30 years, living there for 30 years, and sort of reacquaint yourself with with those communities and the kind of places that served as the basis mm-hmm. for, for this town?
1: Um, well, first of all, as I mentioned before, I go back every 18 months or two years when a new book comes out, and right. I... I generally spend about a month um, out in California uh, my parents uh, I'm from the Bay Area I'm from San Francisco and then when my parents retired a few years after they retired my wife and I moved them from Berkeley up to Mendocino County uh-huh. okay. okay so uh, we then would stay with them for two or three weeks every time we came out in Mendocino County and Okay. did a lot of exploring up there. Yep. I also, I used to write for a lot of magazines and newspapers. And um, in 1990, I think it was, I got an assignment from the Observer of London, the great newspaper mm. and magazine, it was for the Observer magazine, to do a story on... Um, uh, Mississippi summer in the California redwoods, which was this uh, protest movement to try and save the last old growth redwoods in Mendocino and Humboldt counties Mm -hmm. from being cut down by Louisiana Pacific and Georgia Pacific. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed lots of people on both sides and Allison took these terrific and horrific photos. Mm of some of the brutality that was going on. I mean, really ugly, scary stuff mm-hmm. that also, Against the protesters or the trees? Against the protesters. the protesters. No, no, the protesters yeah. were chaining themselves to trees, right. climbing up trees, uh, and, and they were being pulled out or cut mm-hmm. away, and they were um, lying down on the highways, and the National Guard and the uh, police and the sheriffs Office, uh, whatever deputies would come in and I saw them spraying mace, Mm. lifting up the eyelids of the people who were holding on to each other or were chained up. And they'd like lift up their eyelids and spray mace into their Mm. face. Mm. So really sicko stuff. Yeah. And uh, some of that made its way many, many, many years later into the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The book, uh, I I know that part of the world very well, actually. Yeah. all too well.
0: Yeah, I would so, say so. not hard for you to place a story there.
1: No, not at all. So
0: um, the other thing that's different here, besides the fact it doesn't take place in France or in Paris, is that it's obviously fiction versus nonfiction. And mm-hmm. you did write at least two other fiction books. In nineteen ninety seven, you published *La Tour de Limonde*, and which was about violence and murder in central Paris and its banlieue or suburb. And you also published uh, *City of Night*, which you already referenced earlier, mm-hmm. I think, which is mm-hmm. a. a, a Jay Grant thriller but you haven't done fiction for quite a while it sounds like so what was it about this point in time and about this story that you wanted to tell that you thought okay I want to I want to do fiction for this next this next project
1: well I always wanted to write fiction and I have other novels in drawers that may come out one day now now that it's okay to self-publish because these are books that you know no one is going to want to publish they were important to me at the time, and I think yes. a couple of them are, are actually you know, worth publishing. But that said, I, I always wanted to be a novelist. Um, and, you know, I've had to earn a living. So I've done, I've, you know, I did a lot of magazine work and newspaper work and um, and then wrote a lot of nonfiction books and I stand by them, I, I'm proud of them. Yeah. But my real passion from the time I was a teenager Was literature and I wanted to write serious novels, Um, this novel happened in a kind of epiphanic way, if I can invent that. It was...
0: I was wondering if that was a real word. uh, It kind of works. It sounds good. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. We're gonna we're gonna let you use that. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. (laughs) So
1: um, these themes were in my head for many years and I kept trying to write this book mm-hmm. the first iteration of it was called um wasted lives mm-hmm. because of the, the, the in the book you'll see there there's a story about toxic waste dumping in these beautiful forests yeah which is unfortunately true um the next title was just carverville which is the name of the town and that came to me decades ago for some reason i don't know where it came from mm-hmm. but anyway i i I couldn't do it for some reason. the elements didn't come together, yeah, and then I uh, was having dinner with an old friend in Italy. He's a writer also, and he told me that he had just published a collection of short stories, and one of them was called um this is in Dutch, not in English, but he to- told me the title in English, yeah, the Garden of Aden, uh-huh the Garden of Aden. Uh-huh. when he said' the Garden of Aden, I heard. The Gardener of Eden. Interesting. And it was like a shock. And as I Ecophantic. sat there over dinner, yeah, the whole novel played itself in my head, like really? a Hitchcock movie. Interesting. Yeah, and I freaked out and I started writing it down and I was breathless. And then I worked my butt off to write it. I but, love that.
0: Uh, I love that you had that flash where it came yeah it came to you. And yeah. you could and particularly given that you it hadn't come together for so long. No, I had tried and tried and I
1: just couldn't do it. And then suddenly I had the title and it was the title. And then I saw the characters and I saw everything that was going to happen. Interesting. And you know what? This just happened to me again the other day, two days ago.
0: You want to share what
1: happened? Well, I was lying in bed feeling miserable because I'm jet lagged and I got, you know, the flu or something when I was on book tour. Yeah. And I've been really, really tired, to be honest. And I was lying in bed, kind of feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. And um, the same kind of thing happened. I don't know what it was. I'd been listening to the news. I listened to some music. And then, you know, bingo, the title came to me and I saw a new book. Uh-huh. And I'm, I'm afraid to tell tell it. But um, I don't know. Maybe don't tell I, it. it. No? Okay, no. I won't tell it.
0: I, I would go with, go with that gut. Go with your gut there. Yeah. Just hold on to that. Yeah. Be thankful that it, you got that download, so to speak. Right. But that's how it with works
1: it. with me. Mm-hmm. It always works that way. Mm-hmm. I see, I think about things, I mull them over for years, and then there's a flash. Yeah. And the, 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 the story plays like a movie in my head.
0: Interesting. So would that explain, then, my next question was going to be, but maybe that sort of explains it, is because we went from, okay, from nonfiction to fiction, and why, why, why you felt like going in that direction this time around but then i was also curious sort of going another step um with regards to of all the kinds of fiction a haunting novel of suspense but again maybe you've already explained that it's just because
1: um it was the nature of the material yeah what i wanted was to have this beautiful place and it is a beautiful place Mm -hmm. um with horrible things going on in it yeah and i'll tell you i don't think i could have uh, finished writing this novel and i don't think it would have come out the way it did if donald trump hadn't been elected president Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. let's let's go one step further with that um part of what you're inferring there without getting derailed on the whole trump thing like we talked about but part of what you are referring to there i think was also going to be where i was going to go next which is the, the novel takes place in this sort of dystopian near future, mm-hmm. very near future, yeah. and, which I think is the connection there. So can you talk about that, that near future in which the novel takes place? And I'm going to hold off on the second part of that question. So let's talk about that, kind of this, um, the, the, set, the time setting for this story.
1: I, I think what we have is the um, degradation and violation of the concept of the rule of law. And I think that that's what's fundamental. I think that that's what's happening in America today. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent, you should be absolutely shocked and up in arms because we have a thug and a criminal and a traitor in the Oval Office. He uh, is, uh, beyond the fact that he's a pathological liar, and now he gets his little minions to say liar, liar, pants on fire about someone else who's finally blowing the whistle on him. I mean, it is, it is absolutely grotesque. Yeah. I think that this dystopian future, which is not a future anymore, it is today, is the breakdown of um, civility and of the rule of law, the concept of law. We are equal before the law. We believe in representative democracy. We believe in institutions. We believe in the Constitution. We used to. We have a man in charge, surrounded by a bunch of monkeys who are absolutely treasonous and sellouts, who do not believe in these things. Mm -hmm. They simply don't. Now, I don't have personal proof that the man is a mafioso. I think that I'm not the only one who suspects it. (laughs) Um, But... Yeah, I think that that is the world that we have created. And if you've ever had to deal with the mafia, either on a high level or a low level, you will recognize the techniques. And, uh, you know, I think America could potentially become a very scary place. It is scary on many levels already. But I think that, you know, when Trump and his people start going after intellectuals, uh, and locking them up the way it, Erdogan. Erdo, I was going to say Turkey. Yep. I mean, yep. you knew Tur- Turkey, before Erdogan. I did. Right. The right. times I went there. Right. Uh, now uh, you open your mouth in Turkey, you could be thrown in jail and tortured and killed. Yeah, very very scary. easily.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Very easily. Yeah. It's yeah. not even something that it's. I mean, tens of thousands of people have.
1: Oh, it's going on right Press, now. Same thing in, in Russia. Yeah. Yeah. I went to the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. which was sobering, believe me. Mm-hmm. Because if you ever had any illusions about communism or what they called communism, right. all you needed to do was visit the Soviet Union to and become reality. A, a, a real conservative. Right.
0: When I lived in Turkey, ninety four ninety five, they had a woman prime minister. Yeah, it was, right. a,
1: it was a completely different place. Right.
0: And I mean, and she was, um, yeah, I mean, again... There's, there's so much to say there, but yet yeah, to see the direction it's gone. But I think the point to this part of the conversation, though, is when you, when you know places before they become like what Turkey's become, before authoritarian, before the mafiosos, before all of that happens, it's just a very tangible reminder that we can't take it for granted, that it would never happen in France, or it would never happen in the United States, or it would never... Because you've seen it happen other places, Correct. and then you realize, no, this is a very real danger. This Absolutely. isn't something that it's just alarmists no. getting all worked up about oh, nothing. No. This is real. No, no. And I think yeah.
1: that when you have um, former U.S. officials uh, at, at very high levels saying exactly this, nothing that I've said is original. Yeah, uh, You know, the, uh, the, these, these people are not Left wing nutcases or anything who are criticizing Trump, even people in his own party. And his party is, I would be ashamed to be a Republican today.
0: So, is the book largely sort of a, a, a wake up call and sort of a warning, having it set in this time where it's a little further down the road in our potential future, which hopefully we won't get there? But because I mean, there's a state in the book. Um, it's not exactly today in the sense there's a state of emergency has been declared I mean there are really specific things there's been the downburst that you refer to right so you do go a little further ahead in imagining where things could get yeah the right. end
1: of 2019 probably
0: okay <laughs> no let's yeah. let's hope not but 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 is that is that part of the reason you said it in that in that time as sort of a warning and wake-up call or was uh, it more just yeah not but, that deliberate
1: but yes and no. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want anyone to think that this is a um, a manifesto or a preachy book. It yeah. isn't. Yeah. In fact, I was very happy that the um, Colleen Daly, who's an editor and writer, who interviewed me in Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago at Politics and Prose, she said she read the book twice. The first time she read it, she had no sense of any of these things we're talking about. She read it a second time and t- took notes and said, Yeah. And then I noticed you said this and this and this. And is it supposed to be a wake up call? And I said, well, I think a lot of people are fully awake and aware of what's going on. I'm not revealing anything that they don't know. Um, And I didn't write it as propaganda or a manifesto at all. It's an entertainment. It's a novel of suspense. It's a Hitchcock movie.
0: Well, I would agree as a reader that, I mean, I noticed those things just because I'm Probably because I knew I had to talk to you <laughs> and I wanted to pay attention, but I, I mean, I try to pay attention to those things anyway. So, but I agree as a reader, what we're talking about now is a back is the backdrop to the main story. It's not that right, right you're not. I didn't feel preachy, it didn't right, feel, right. but I was just aware that that time in what yeah. it's taking you know, that's I, the world that's taking time. place, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I absolutely, you. We, we, you and I agree on two kind of specific points here, and I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about here in a second. So you also have sort of commentary, if you will, in the same way that you're making commentary where it's not in your face, but it's just part of the overall narrative related to technology and then also millennials and Gen Zs, which I'll talk about in a second. So drones. Mm. So drones, um, you have a drone I've seen on Facebook. A lot of you, you share I am. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You <laughs> kidding. Are kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I drone on. You drone on right? sometimes, yeah. but yeah. we'll edit that part out. Um, but no, so so drones are a big part. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. and then there are cameras everywhere, cameras on the drones, but also in this community, there mm-hmm. are a lot of cameras. There's the surveillance.
1: Lots of places like that right. already.
0: Right. So, again, that's sort of, um, we're not. Not far from that. Um, oh, no, we're there. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're there. We're there. Yeah. And believe
1: me, I did not know anything about um, closed-circuit TVs and how they work, and I didn't know anything about drones, and I didn't know anything about cellular telephony. You saw my cell phone when I came in. Your cell phone, it's a smartphone. It's yeah. first generation. Yeah. It, half the things don't work. It's so old. Okay, <laughs> so what did I do? I appealed to an expert. I did my research. I interviewed a guy who... Uh, has a drone services company and was formerly an executive in um, one of the big cellular telephone companies, and so I, I I found out how these things work, and where they're going and what they're capable of doing. So everything in the book, and then before it was published, I sent it to him and had him check. Right, and he said, "Yeah, this is, this all is legit." Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I was very careful about that because I didn't want to be accused of doing, you know, a sloppy job. So all of that is already going on, Mm -hmm. unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Scary. Scary. But along those lines, um, the cell phone addiction, Mm -hmm. I have repeatedly said, my friends can vouch to this, I've probably said it on the podcast before, when I rule the world, which I'm still working on, Mm -hmm. smartphones will be banned. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, yes, there are certain good good uses for smartphones. Like, Mm -hmm. I like the map app, even though I know that They get to track me if I use the map app Um, but I think in general these smartphones are doing much more damage than good unfortunately and of Mm -hmm. course if you're listening to this podcast right now on a smartphone that's one of the good uses you're allowed to use your smartphone to listen to this podcast Um, but I loved that you had the character Taz Mm -hmm. Taz right so he is early 20s or late teens he's 17 he's 17 late teens or whatever teens Um, but he's just addicted to his cell phone yeah totally and he has two cell phones yes and so is that based on, do you have people that age in your life and you've just seen that? Because that just drives me crazy because mm-hmm. my nephews, and then it's not just my nephews. I mean, it's even 20 somethings and 30 somethings. And it's quite frankly, it's beyond that. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a walk by a cafe or walk by a restaurant and you'll see two people at dinner yeah. and they're both looking oh, at their phones. Oh, oh,
1: yeah, right. opposite each other. Yeah, opposite each other. Romantic exactly. couples. Right. That's why, right. you know, Paris and Romance. Yeah. Maybe the Just seventy year olds, up. I don't know. Yeah. But the, the young sit there across from each other smoking cigarettes and playing with their phone. Right. It's pretty pathetic. Right. It's very sad. Right. Um where did it come from? Yes, I'm not going to name the friends <laughs> and relatives, but I'll tell you what was a real shocker to me. A friend my age, who's a really smart guy and one of the nicest guys in the world and you know has multiple graduate degrees and everything else, he's a complete addict. Mm-hmm. And then some of my relatives are like that. I mean, I took some relatives. I won't say anything more because they might hear this or watch <laughs> it. And um, everywhere we went, I took them all over you know Paris Venice Rome Florence the whole time they could have just been looking at their phones it was so
0: depressing and I really believe it is an addiction oh it is I really well, believe people become... making a lot
1: of money yeah um, getting people off so uh, in China they have camps for that yes yeah oh and I, my yeah. my wife uh, Allison she hates that but uh, we neither one of us can stand it, yeah this and so she said you know we should get into that business and I said do you really want to spend time with these people? No. No, don't you don't. do want to spend time with them. No, I mean, you don't. yeah, they're useful. They're a tool like everything else. Right. But if you're a couch potato and you watch TV five hours a day, that's an addiction. That's a sickness. It's like everything else. Right. Sleeping pills are really useful for some people sometimes. And opioids, if you've got chronic pain. But look at what happens when you abuse them. And I think... The whole smartphone addiction is an abuse of a very useful tool.
0: And I think they they did it deliberately, right? I mean, the articles have come out where Facebook, Twitter, whatever, I don't... But where they've engaged psychologists, right? the, The whole like concept, I think, is what I'm thinking about. And I think what I read an article about, which is we have that... Whatever the endorphin is, every time we get a like, every time we get some sort of validation online, there's a chemical response, Mm -hmm. and so we get hooked on it.
1: Yeah, and just think of the way the young talk. Everything is like... No, that's my next thing. That's the next thing. So
0: the first one was the cell phone addiction, but the second part that I loved is that you concentrated on that, because particularly in my neighborhood in San Francisco, where every other... I literally... And I hate it when people say "literally" too much, but this is literally. Mm-hmm. I will repeatedly have to change, move tables in it, in cafes where I'm working because someone will sit down of a certain demographic, and every other word is like, like, what and sometimes mean, like, I will start making fun of them out loud because I'm hoping they'll get the message. But then I stop myself because yeah. one, I'm being an asshole. Two is I realize it doesn't register to no, them. No, they don't. They, they don't doesn't. They it. don't care. They don't hear it. And it sends me. I, it just drives me insane. So
1: I could like. Um, talk like, like that. Like now, it's well to you know, me.
0: Often, like too, because like it's like they're searching. Like, like it gives a certain like, like depth because they're really they're cool. Like, well, they're no, they're like they're, they're really like, reaching. Like,
1: they're like for that, how awesome. to like. Awesome. Oh my
0: God! Like how to express this really deep thought that instead, like is all that comes out. Right, because they never get to that deep thought.
1: Right. <laughs> so, how oh, do they start their sentences? I've been like, so. Either it's either so or like. Oh my God! So right now everything is so. Uh, I mean, what are we Germans? So they are always doing. Yeah. It. Maybe yeah. that's where it came from. That must be where so, it came from. So, did, when I was growing up, if you started every sentence with so, now listen to NPR. I listen to NPR every day. I love NPR. Yeah. But uh, they can't. Start a report or a sentence without saying so, uh huh. Uh, I find it very disconcerting. I don't, I don't, it's it'll go, it's a fad, it'll disappear.
0: Yeah, I don't know, but see, then there is, and this is not, I mean, this is another conversation where one, we obviously agree, so we could go on and on and on. Right? I really need to vent about this, mm-hmm. so I appreciate. Um, you might need to as well. So I don't want to go too much further with this, <laughs> otherwise we're really I'm really gonna have to edit this. But no, um, like
1: we're supposed to like be talking about so, my novel. Like.
0: So I know. Okay. So let's let's. I have one more question about your novel. One big question about the novel, which is um, just about process. And and first of all, just because I'm interested in process as a fellow writer. Um, but again, this idea that you've gone from nonfiction back to fiction—that this is a suspense, there's an element of mystery to this. Mm-hmm. So, how do you kind of, you know, like I said, I recently had Cara um, block on talking about mysteries. I've never written a mystery, and this isn't a mystery, but it's suspenseful. Mm-hmm. So, from a process standpoint, and you know, and you just said, for example, with technology, this is a quick aside, but that again, you had to engage an expert in that. So, from a process standpoint, how was this kind of different and interesting for you to 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 take it on?
1: Well, I think that fiction is extremely challenging, constantly challenging. People who have not written a novel have no notion of how hard it is to write a novel and to bring characters to life, yeah. which is what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the action-driven, plot-driven books um, that sell 200 million copies, I'd love to sell 200 million copies, do will get me wrong. But I'm not interested in them. I mean, they're... so uh, I mean, again, I don't like to speak ill of colleagues, but um, I think. Uh, Dan Brown, who sells sixty, that's, that's what exactly he, what I was thinking. He's got to be one of the worst writers known to man. That's exactly what I was it's thinking. It's painful yeah. to read him, mm-hmm. but I agree. people love his books. It's so, entertaining you know, for so many people. Right. Yeah, well, entertainment comes in different forms. I mean, some people like reality TV, and we <laughs> elected a, a reality TV president. I hate it. So uh, except
0: for the Kardashians, you were saying before we started that you love the Kardashians. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, I mean. We could go into that, because that Theft of the Jewels here in Paris, I think, was... Uh, oh, that's
0: true. I forgot about the Paris Connection.
1: Yeah, it's like... Well, we won't get into that. Okay, but, we'll but, talk about that later. Yeah. But, uh, um, no, writing fiction is extremely challenging. It's very hard to write a good nonfiction book, to research it thoroughly, and to write a non-fiction book in an engaging way. And, you know, you mentioned my book Paris, Paris, or Paris, Paris... Journey into the city oh, is of light. Well, Paris, that Paris. was the idea ah, okay, gotcha. because the yeah. French say it; they call it Paris. And we call it Paris. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, when I wrote that book, one of my editors said, "You know what I love about your uh, writing is that each one of those chapters reads like a novel. Mm-hmm. It's nonfiction, but mm-hmm. they're written like little tiny novels, right. short stories. Right. And um, so I." I always tried to make my nonfiction books novelistic, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I think it's all about telling a story in an engaging way, right. uh, and that's what I tried to do in the book. Whether I succeeded or not, I don't know. It's not up to me to say. But, um, that, yeah, I would say that that's really, really, really difficult. Tell an engaging story, an unputdownable book with really good characters who live on. Think of John. I don't know if you like John Le Carré, I think he's a, a really talented writer. Um, I want to know what is happening in Smiley's life. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, yes. he created this host of characters, uh, Guillaume or Guillem, uh, because he's half French. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to know what happens to them from mm-hmm. book to book. Mm-hmm. They become th- real. Yeah, I mean, that's why people loved Simonon with his inspector Maigret. And so on, two hundred odd novels. You you wanna know because you're engaged. You you like this guy or you hate him or something. You have feelings
0: yeah. of one way or the other. Right, yeah.
1: right. So that's what I wanted to do.
0: So you said, you know, and rightly so, having written one novel and two now nonfiction books, you said, you know, that it's it's very, very difficult, obviously, to, to work in fiction. But one thing that I liked about it, and I'm assuming you'll agree with this, I'm curious your thoughts, uh, is um at the same time there's a freedom. Because you are creating the world. You're basically sort of playing God. Sure. So even though there's a lot about it that's much more difficult than a nonfiction book, (laughs) there's also the whole that you can do whatever the hell you want. So you must have enjoyed that aspect of it. I
1: could could create a character who vaguely resembles the man in the Oval Office, and I can kill him. Yeah, you see, it's the perfect crime. I right. can get away with but it. But you
0: did not do this, by the way, in the book. That's just a no, hypothetical. No, I'm just that's right. just so that you could do. You can do whatever the hell you want. Yeah,
1: right, right, right. right. So, look, you said you in your kingdom people wouldn't have uh, smartphones. No. Smartphones, yes. Right? Well, yes. they wouldn't have cigarettes or smartphones in my yes. kingdom. But I'm happy to go into your kingdom. You see, you can create that kingdom in your head, yeah. and that's what you do when you're a fiction writer. When you write nonfiction. You can't do that. You have to be very careful. Yeah. When you're writing fiction, you have to respect something called verisimilitude, right? You have to suspend the disbelief, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, yeah. If I can get you to believe me I'm telling you a story, when you open the book, you're skeptical. Everyone is a skeptical reader. You start reading, and it's like, oh, yeah, uh, no. If I can get you to believe in these people and in this situation, you have suspended your disbelief and you're going to enter into the story. um, That is the wonderful power of fiction. It is very difficult to achieve. But yes, if at a certain point in the book, my character Beverly, for example, and everyone loves Beverly, um, decides that she's going to say this or that or do this or that, she can do that. I just have to make the book follow afterwards. And in fact, Beverly was a very, very recalcitrant character because (laughs) I wanted her to do certain things. And she just said, you know, hell no. You know, I'm going to do this, and she would go and do that. Well,
0: because sometimes when they become so real and you get to know them so well, then they do take on lives of their own. Oh,
1: they do, and right? you're living with them, and then people right. really think you're insane. Right. I pity my wife. <laughs> I honestly pity my wife. Uh-huh. I mean, not only does she have to look at this every day, and you know, uh, you age, and I've lost one of my eyes, and the whole thing, but she has to live with a madman. <laughs> I'm, You know, I'm cracked. I realize that. But I, I don't think it's easy to write fiction if yeah. you're a completely, you know, level-headed... No, you or... got to be able to go there. You've got to be able to be a
0: little crazy, right? right. You so gotta... you
1: must have some kind of craziness. I don't
0: think that I do, but I know that most fiction writers do. I think somehow I, I just stayed very stable, very sane, very... <sighs> Yeah, I don't think I have any of that.
1: Well, bless you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, we are completely over time, and um, but this was such a great conversation, and I, we could keep going. I have many more questions, but um, I do want to wrap up by asking you if you have any new projects underway that you want to share. Sure talked about some things coming up. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to share with regards to what might be underway?
1: Yeah, well I've already written another novel. Oh you have? Yeah. Oh, it's wow. called okay. Red Riviera. Okay. It's set on the Italian Riviera. Uh huh. And it is a classic um police detective novel. Okay. With an Italian detective and her sidekick. Nice.
0: Oh her sidekick. Oh, so it's yeah. a female protagonist. Yeah, she's uh-huh. half
1: she's half American and half Italian, but she's more Italian because she lives in Italy. Yeah. And um, some pretty gruesome in, and highly politicized okay. or political things happen okay. in in that book okay. in Italy because, yeah. as you know, Italy has been essentially uh, taken over by a Salvini? neo-fascist. Is that the... Matteo Salvini? Salvini,
0: right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And do you have a, a release date for that yet, or is that?
1: Uh, no, it's in my agent's hands, okay. so we will hope that um, uh, she will find a home for it. But you okay. know, it goes book to book now,
0: yeah, yes, yes, okay. Any events that we need to look at? because I know you just wrapped up a tour, so maybe you're just kind of focused on, yeah, I've other done stuff my last moment.
1: event. I yeah. just did my last event for this book, though this fall, I may do another event for the Gardener of Eden at the American Library in Paris. Okay. It depends on their schedule yeah,
0: okay, great. Uh, let me just shout out the links here, daviddowney.com, daviddowney.com, and uh, if people want to do tours with you, uh, presumably that's where they also go for yeah. to line up tours. Yep. David, thank you very much for being here. Oh, it's been great. This is great. Yeah, I, I loved it. chatting with yeah. you, and uh, we'll have to do it again. Find, find a home for the new book, and we'll do it again. All right. All right. That's thank indeed. you. All right. That's Sounds good. Fun. That is all for today. Thanks again to my guest, author David Downey. Thanks to WordSpace Studios for hosting the show, not today, but usually hosting the show. They are, of course, or they again, of course, are at WordSpaceStudios.com. Uh, next week, I'll be talking, like I said at the beginning, with artist and uh, creative process exhibition founder Mia Funk. Thank you for watching and listening. If you like today's show, would you please share on social media and subscribe, rate, and review and all that kind of stuff? Uh, wherever you help, happen to watch or listen, I really appreciate it, and it really helps. For more about me, including my website, uh, or, sorry, for more about me on my website, MatthewFelix.com is all the information about my social media, books, podcasts, and all the rest. If you have any comments, ideas for the show, or just want to say hello, you can email me at felixonair at MatthewFelix.com. Thanks again for watching and listening, and have a great week.